You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the most Christmassy passage in all of Scripture, Genesis 3. As we continue in our series, Tis the Season, and we've been discussing a topic that uh, I think for us um, can turn the most wonderful time of the year into the most contentious time of the year, this thing called conflict. And I was reminded of a story this uh, last week of a couple who had been uh, married for 60 years. Uh, They lived their life uh, in a very simple way. They shared everything. They had no secrets, except when they got married, uh, the wife um, had this shoebox, and she put it in her closet, and she asked her husband to never look inside and never ask any questions. And so, of course, he agreed because he loved his wife so much. As years went by, he forgot about the shoebox. He didn't think anything of it until his wife became ill, And he began putting together all of her affairs. He saw the shoebox and he grabbed it. He took it to the hospital and he asked his wife, may I have permission to open the shoebox? She said yes. And as he opened it up, he saw a few things. First of all, he saw two crocheted dolls and then he saw a wad of cash worth $95,000. Now, the first question was, honey, what's with all these these two crocheted dolls? And she said, well, When we first got married, I asked my mom how to handle conflict, and she said, honey, always deal with conflict right away. Never let it fester, never let it grow, reconcile as fast as you can, but if you can't, knit a crochet doll. I don't know if, is that what you do with crochet? Do you knit it? You crochet, literally shows you, I'm just telling the story, communicating facts, Not speaking from personal experience, obviously. So crochet a doll. And he was overwhelmed because like he's holding these two dolls in his hands and thinking of himself, wow, like over 60 years of marriage, like this is all the conflict we had was two dolls. He's just, he's so overwhelmed. He started to tear up and he started, I love you so much, honey. And then he looked at the water cash and he asked, well, what's the water cash? And he said, well, every time I crochet a doll, I'd take it to the flea market and sell it for $5. It's funny, uh, and I think it's funny because it's relatable, right? It's relatable because conflict is so common in our lives. Uh, Whether you're the type of person in the context of conflict that explodes, or maybe you implode, maybe uh, you vent, or maybe you just never, ever forget. I think that we all struggle with conflict in our relationships. And as we continue this, we, run, we recognize in Genesis chapter 3 that conflict was not part of God's original design. In fact, if we were to back up and we saw last week that uh, in Genesis 3, we saw in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we saw that a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who lived in perfect fellowship for eternity past creates Adam and Eve in his image, not to create puppets, not to create robots, but to to create people that they could invite into relationship with them. The intended purpose of creating Adam and Eve was that God could enjoy relationship with his creation. But of course, we also saw last week in Genesis chapter 3 that there was an enemy. And this enemy was a liar and a deceiver, crafty and subtle, and he had a strategy to sever our vertical relationship with God. 
because he knew if he could sever our vertical relationship with God, our horizontal relationships would naturally fall apart. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Our enemy was very smart. We saw in the text last week that he confused Eve. He confused her so that she wasn't sure who she was and who God was and who she was in relationship to Adam. She drew everything into question and to doubt. She created a, or Satan created a caricature out of God, a caricature that God seemed like he was self-serving, spoil sport, not worthy to be worshiped. And then he helped soothe her conscience into the idea of sinning and rebelling against God. And then we saw that he contorted reality, telling her the consequences aren't going to be near as bad as God has told you they will be. So here we find Adam and Eve. Now we're all caught up in Genesis chapter 3. And since we know the story already so well, I'm not going to read ahead. I'm just going to go one verse at a time. And we recognize that right here, Eve has been confronted by the enemy. The enemy has worked hard to deceive her into making a really bad decision. And Adam and Eve have a very clear choice to make. We look at it in verse 6. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now let's back up a little bit and just get the context. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's the work. Here's the choice. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, what would she do? She had a choice. And you and I have choices every day just like this one that affect our relationships profoundly. Amen? So, Father, we come to you this morning as we gather around your word. God, your word has life. Father, it can breathe new life into spiritually dead souls. And I pray, Father, today that for that person who is maybe far from you, God, that you would breathe new life into their soul. But for that couple Um, who needs new life in their relationship as it's been tattered and worn and destroyed by sin and its effects. Father, I pray that, God, you would breathe new life into that relationship. For broken relationships that have affected all of us in this room, I pray, Father, that you would instruct us to understand how, how Satan has been a part of that destruction and, Father, how it can be restored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see here in verse 6 that Adam and Eve have a very clear decision that they need to make a choice. But I wonder if you can finish uh, this statement for me. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Very good. I think we're all familiar with this idea that we walk by faith, we not walk not by sight. And we understand that the cornerstone of our relationship with God since the garden here to KOP is that we walk by faith. That is that we trust God's promises as true. That is that we trust, faith is trusting God's promises as true, regardless of how we, what? 
feel. Regardless of whether or not those promises are inconvenient, because they oftentimes are, regardless of whether or not they they hurt to execute, whether or not they're unattractive, we trust God's promises as true. That is that we live life in light of eternal consequences. That is what makes living by faith so hard is that oftentimes the consequences of not following through on God's promises are eternal consequences, not immediate. And when we don't walk by faith, there's an immediate benefit. Sin is immediately enjoyable, but has long-lasting consequences, and it's hard to remember. And that's why oftentimes, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I look at God and I say, God, walking by faith is so hard. Is anybody with me? It is tough. It is living your life in light of eternal consequences. Faith is fearing God more than man. Faith is trusting God's word more than your feelings. And the question is, would Adam and Eve walk by faith in this moment? Because believe it or not, our relationship with God ever since the beginning of time has been one of walking by faith. Same for Adam and Eve. And see, we walk by faith every day. We make choices every day based off faith. Are we going to have a confident expectation in the fulfillment of a promise or not? And it impacts our relationships all the time. I remember when I was growing up, and um, maybe a negative example, my dad would say to me frequently, David, Matt, you better have your room cleaned by the time I get home. Anybody else ever get that one? And I would say, well, so what, I would smart back because I was not smart. I would smart back and not smart, you know what I'm trying to say. And I'd say, well, what's going to happen if I don't? He's like, you don't want to find out. And so I would live by faith that day, trusting that God's, my dad's promise is going to come true if I don't, you see what I'm saying? We walk by faith. Or in another instance, my dad would say, well, hey, Matt, if you get good grades this semester, if you get all A's, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to give you something that you really want. Well, what is it going to be, dad? You just got to wait and find out. And acting on faith. Do we see, we, we live by faith all of the time. And so the question is, what are Adam and Eve going to do in this text? Well, Eve makes a choice, and her choice that she has to make is this. Will I live by faith and trust God's promises and not eat of the fruit, or will I live by sight, will I doubt God's word, will I doubt God's promises, will I doubt God's character and trust the serpent's lies? That God is a self-serving spoil sport not worthy of my devotion. And she makes a choice. And look at what it is here in the text, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that is that it would meet an immediate physical need, right? But where does faith come in? God said, don't what? Don't eat it. But it serves an immediate physical gratification. This is where faith comes into play. So it was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, Not that there was anything wrong with the fruit necessarily, but the more she looked at it, the more she wanted it, the more she wanted it, the more she lusted after it, and she had to have it to the point at which she was willing to disobey God to get it. Anytime you look at a good thing 
that God has created for you, but know that to get it, you have to violate God's commands. That is where you cease to live by faith. Are we tracking? Okay. So when the woman saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You see that the temptation of the fruit wasn't so much how attractive it was or how good it tasted, but what it promised them. To make them wise, that they would know good from evil, and not just academically, but here's the lie that Satan didn't tell them about. They would know it, how? Practically, experientially. He didn't tell them, oh, you're going to become evil because you've committed evil. He didn't tell them that. But had they walked by faith and trusted God's promises as true in spite of what was in front of them and what they saw, but instead, no, Eve makes a selfish decision to satisfy the immediate craving of her flesh rather than trusting the long-lasting, long-term, long-game consequences that God has promised. She makes a selfish decision. And let me ask you this. Have you ever made a selfish decision in your life that has hurt a personal relationship you value? Isn't this the seeds of every, this is the stuff that breaks apart relationships everywhere, amen? That I, I, I want this thing now, right? And I'm willing to hurt, I'm willing to betray, I'm willing to um, break trust in order to get it and, it, and it ends up hurting someone else. Do we see it all the time? All right. Now, where's Adam in the equation? Where is Adam? Is he, is he out gathering food? I'm sure he's out gathering food because he's a dutiful husband, amen? Is he out playing a harp? Because that's clearly what people did back in the garden, right? And that's what we're gonna do in all of eternity, right? We're just gonna sit around on clouds with wings playing harps, right? Chubby little babies, no? I know he's out frolicking in the garden because that's what God told him, to go frolic and play. What's he doing? Look back at the text. Where is he? Verse six, let's read it together. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was where? He was with her, right next to her. He ate. See, Selfishness is incredibly destructive in relationships, but here's something else that's incredibly destructive. I'm, I'm going to demonstrate to you the greatest sin committed in the garden. Are you ready? Dan, you might want to back up because I'm, I'm going to show you what it is. I'm, on the count of five, I'm going to do it. Four, th- are you ready? Three, I'm going to show you the greatest sin ever committed. Are you ready? We're in church. You're like, oh yeah, just go ahead and get, like seriously, like two, are you ready? One, Did you catch it? What did I do? Nothing. What did Adam do? Nothing. Passivity is one of neglect of responsibility is one of the greatest sins 
that any of us can ever commit is the neglect of God-given responsibilities to do as we have been commanded and instructed to do, to just say passively, I'm not gonna do it. And does passivity and neglect damage and destroy relationships? Does all the time. Adam does nothing. He neglects his spiritual responsibility and he commits one of the greatest sins that so many men are guilty of. Was Adam a hard worker? Yes. Was he a good friend to his wife? Yes. Was he an affectionate husband? Yes. But when the moment arose and he needed to be the spiritual protector, did he rise to the challenge? No. He did not. And men, let me say this. So much of the counseling that has happened in my office over the eight years of ministry that I've done here in this place has been the result of men neglecting their responsibility to spiritually lead their family. Men, by assignment, you have been called by God to be the spiritual leaders in your home. You have been called to be the spiritual thermostat in your home, to set the spiritual temperature in your home of what it looks like to passionately pursue hard after God. Amen? Okay. And yet the greatest sin of so many men is the simple sin of neglect. Because I'm out providing for the family, I'm out working hard, I come home and I kiss my wife on the cheek and I take care of my kids, but so many men are failing in their responsibility, their assignment given by God to be the spiritual thermostat, to raise the spiritual temperature in the home for the glory of God. And you're saying, well, I need to provide for my family. I need to provide for my family. I need to provide for my family. I got to go out and work more and work more and work more. And God's saying, no, trust me more and get on fuego for me. And everything else will fall into place. And I don't think I've ever met a wife in my counseling sessions who would not say, I'm not sure I want my husband to love Jesus more. And so, why is this important? Eve was selfish and short-sighted. Adam was passive and irresponsible. And they eat the fruit. What is the big deal? What is the big deal of eating the fruit? Here's why it's such a big deal. Because it's the betrayal. It was a betrayal of the highest order. Who did they betray? They betrayed God. I mean, I mean, think about it. You're, you're going to go out and you're going to um, buy gifts for loved ones and you're going to think hard about what it is that they like and what it is that they value and what it is they need and what it is they want. And so you're going to put a lot of time and energy and emotional anxiety into trying to figure out what loved ones care about. And then you're going to spend time to go out and get it. And then you're going to spend some money to go out and pay for it. And imagine you go to all of that effort to get this gift for someone that you love. You put it in their hands, they open it up and they love the gift and they never say thank you. Would you feel a little betrayed? Would you be frustrated at bare minimum? Let's take it a little bit further. Imagine, imagine a, a single mom who works three jobs her entire life to get her only child 
into a college where he can be set up for his future, where he can go and be educated and earn a, a degree and get into a career. And so finally, she gets him into that, into that college. She mounts up tons of debt. She's working herself to the bone to pay it off. Son graduates, goes out. He makes it in the world and never calls mom. Never says thank you. How should mom feel? Is mom gonna feel a little betrayed? How, do, how does God feel in this moment that he's given us everything for us to enjoy? And Adam and Eve, in the single act of taking this fruit that he said, look, you take of this, you're gonna die. Don't eat of it. They take this fruit with the promise that this is going to make us wise. We're going to know good from evil and we're not going to need God anymore and we can get him out of our lives and it's just going to be us and it's just going to be you and me. And they say, yes, take the fruit. They eat of it and they're effectively saying to God, God, thanks for all the good stuff. We don't need you. Do you see it? Now, Satan knows, as we saw last week, that if he can break this up, then this is going to fall apart. And do we see a lot of this brokenness relationally all around the world? Do we see it in our nation? Do you see it in your neighborhood? Do you ever experience it in your home? I think we all do. And Satan knows very well that if he can break up our covenant relationship with God, he can destroy our relationships with one another. And betrayal, this is where most relationships end. Amen? This is where most relationships end. When a covenant is broken, a contract is violated, reasonable expectations are met. When someone is selfish, too passive for a multitude of reasons, betrayal occurs. This is where most relationships end or at least have the beginning of the end. So what happens next? Adam and Eve have severed their relationship with God. They said, we don't want you. What are the consequences? Well, this obviously means that Adam and Eve are free to live as they please, right? Do whatever they want. The garden is ours. We don't need God anymore. We've kicked him out. God is dead, yada, yada. All is good, amen? Close the Bible, go home. What really happens here? This is where everything falls apart. We see the consequences of sin because shame is entered into the equation. Look at verse seven. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, here's the thing. If you back up to chapter 2, at the end, I think in verse 26, it says that they were naked and what? Not ashamed. But now, all of a sudden, their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. They were naked the whole time. But what has entered into the equation? This sense of shame. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. Shame is this internal alarm that goes off inside of you that tells you, I've done something wrong. I've messed up. I've 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 done something really stupid. You ever, you ever had that alarm go off in your heart and in your mind? You know what I'm talking about? Like that that alarm just like we got a big problem, Houston. It feels like a weight. It feels like tightness. It feels like this sinking feeling. A lot of people, I think in America especially, they confuse shame with depression. And so they live with this shame and they try to treat it medically by giving it medication. And so we're trying to get out of this depression when really what they're dealing with is this massive level of shame. 
And the reason why it's so overwhelming in America is because as we're becoming more and more a post-Christian society, we're not telling people anymore, if you experience shame in your life, take it to the Lord. Go to God. He will help you. He will cure you. He will heal you. He will forgive you. We're not telling that to people anymore. So now we're telling people, go to your doctor, medicate, cover it. You'll be okay. And it never goes away. Are we tracking? I'm not saying there's not a place for medication in any place, but I'm saying so oftentimes we confuse depression actually for what it is, shame. It's this alarm bell that goes off in us that's supposed to tell us to run to God. But instead of doing that, how do Adam and Eve, how do we as Americans, how do we as uh, average individuals, how do we typically handle shame in our relationships? Well, there's three things I see here in the text that I want to unpack for a little bit. We, we try to cover it. Um, we try to hide it. Um, we try to cover it, we try to hide it, or we try to hide, and we try to blame shift. A couple of thoughts on these. In verse 7, we see the covering. And then the eyes of both were opened, and that they knew that they were naked. And here, here you see the hiding. Tell me if you see it. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. They're trying to, trying to cover their shame. Adam and Eve literally sew fig leaves together to try to cover that which they thought was shameful. Now, I think if you understand this properly, you understand that many of us today, we don't try to cover up our shame with fig leaves, amen? Uh, But we do try to cover up our shame with a lot of other things. When that alarm bell starts going off in the heart and the mind, you recognize something inside of you is telling you something's not right. And it's not just horizontal ever. Are we tracking on that one? When that alarm bell goes off, it's not just horizontal, it's vertical. But when the alarm bell goes off, we don't know what to do with it, so we try to cover it up. And so in America, we're, we're professionals at covering our shame with all sorts of addictive substances. Alcohol, barbiturates, do you realize like oxycodone is like, it's an epidemic now? Am I, do I got that right, David? It's an epidemic in America um, pot and illicit drugs, not that, that's not what I meant, don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say there. Bad stuff, right? That's what I'm trying to say. We try to cover up the shame with shopping and hoarding. We try to cover it up with um, high-risk activities and gambling. We try to cover it up with copious amounts of entertainment. Here's one, we try to cover it up with pornography, you see, I think in America especially, um, I didn't realize this until a couple of years ago, but um, pornography, the industry, brings in more revenue annually uh, than professional baseball, basketball, football combined. It brings in more revenue than NBC, CBS, and ABC combined. Why? Because we go to these things to try to cover the shame. And why do we do this? Well, because in the brain... <laughs> It's interesting if you learn a little bit about um, biomechanics and how the brain works. When you go to these places, these exciting places, it releases what's called um, endorphins. Is that it? Am I, am I got this right so far? Because I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't want to like diagnose. But it releases endorphins. Endorphins is like the pleasure center of the brain. It tells you, it makes you feel good. 
And so when that alarm bell goes off in your heart and you know something's wrong and something's messed up, you run to these places to make yourself feel better. Well, here's the problem when you run to something to make you feel better. If I understand this right about addictive behavior, when you go to the thing that your brain tells you, go here, you'll feel better. The next time you go there, it's a little bit harder to get the same experience, so it requires more. Am I tracking? And so then you go and you feel better, but then the next time you go to feel better, it takes a little bit more until all of a sudden you have a full-blown addiction. Now, here's how this works. When a relationship is broken and that alarm goes off, you run to that addiction, it makes you feel good for a minute, but then it hurts your relationship and it causes this vicious cycle. Am I making any sense here? Is anybody tracking with me? Like, I hope I'm making sense here because I'm like, I hope this makes sense, but this is how it works. We're trying to cover our shame by going to these things that aren't meant to cure our problem, and it only makes the problem worse, which actually makes our relationships more broken. It's a vicious cycle. I am convinced that most men who deal with addiction, whether it's drinking or porn or drugs or illicit um, whatever, they're, they're not doing it because they really like it. In fact, the majority of men that are stuck to addiction are self-loathing. They hate themselves, but they do it to cover the shame. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve were doing here. They sowed fig leaves to cover their shame to try to make it go away, but it only made it worse. And maybe that you are there today. You are stuck in an addictive cycle that is breaking and destroying your relationships. What do we do to cure this? What do we do to help this? Is there hope? Church, there is hope. But let me go on to the second point here. We hide. In verses 8 through 11, it says here, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man his wife... They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, (laughs) where are you? I think this is God showing us he has a sense of humor, right? Does God know where they are? He knows exactly where they are. Do Adam and Eve know where they are? They're lost. They're lost already. In verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? I mean, that's how I made you. Yeah, you had permission to frolic around. Who told you that this was wrong? All of a sudden, everything's getting twisted. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Here are Adam and Eve running from God rather than to God because they know deep down inside they have betrayed God and they are ashamed of their sin. They're ashamed of their betrayal, but they think that because God is a self-serving spoil sport and they've fallen for that lie, instead of running to him, they run from him. They don't confess, they don't repent, they don't own, they hide, they detach, they separate themselves from loving relationship with God and eventually they will find loving relationship with one another and they isolate. They detach, they pull away. Isn't it amazing how sin, it just drives a wedge between the people, us and the people we love the most. And we try to hide. Then I see here in verses 12 and 13, 
They not only try to hide, but then they start blaming each other. Verse 12, the man said, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the the serpent deceived me and I ate. I remember when I was growing up, I watched cops all the time. Did you ever watch cops? And, and police officers would show up to um, a house and there would be a dis- domestic disturbance and someone's called the cops and there's a man and his wife on the front porch yelling and screaming at each other. And what are they doing? They're blaming each other for how the cops had to show up. Well, she did this. No, he did that. And if you hadn't done this and you hadn't thrown that, you broke the TV and you drove the car over my petunias and, and whatever it is, like they're firing shots at each other, blaming each other. And what's not happening? Dude's not saying, yeah, I messed up. I never saw a cop's episode where the guy's like, yeah, I totally biffed it. You never see a cop's episode where the woman's like, yeah, I totally messed up. I lost my cool. I shouldn't have talked like that. You'll never see that because since the beginning, what we've been doing is instead of owning our responsibility for having betrayed God, instead of owning our responsibility for having sinned against one another, we're constantly looking for reasons and excuses to bat away responsibility and shame. Do you see it? Constantly. It has been my privilege, my one of the greatest privileges of what I do and what I get to do is when I get to marry couples. Or the greatest thing is when I get to go to a wedding and I get to stand there with two people who you can tell are so in love with each other. I mean, you just, you got to back away a little bit because you just don't want to get tangled up in their whatever their thing is. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Teens, you're going to go out and you're going to find somebody. You're going to fall desperately in love with that person. You're going to get married. And that, that, that officiant that's going to be with you, he's going to be like, basking in the glow of your love one day and it's going to be awesome and you're going to be privileged that you found someone that is just makes you feel like that and the greatest most disappointing frustrating part of ministry is when I have to sit in my office with a couple who had that moment on their wedding day but a couple of years later Sin and shame has entered into their marriage and everything has fallen apart. And I have to sit there with them and try to help them untangle the messy knot of their relationship over years and years and years of selfishness and neglect and abuse and relational dysfunction and betrayal. And usually by the time they're willing to finally meet with a counselor, meet with a pastor, and I finally sit down with them, sometimes it's too late. But most of all, you know what I find? A total lack of ownership. Very rarely do I ever hear the guy, the guy, the guy, man, I'm gonna pick on you for a second because I am one. Very rarely do I ever see the guy coming into my office and saying, I have totally blown it as a spiritual leader of my home. I have not served my wife well. I have not been available for her emotionally when she needed me. I have not served her needs and known her. I have not gotten my PhD in my wife. It's very rare that I find the guy that's willing to say that. It's very rare. I was talking about Paul Tripp a couple of years ago, and he was saying when he was a counselor at CCEF, um, he had a couple that came in, Ryan, and uh, typical counseling scenario, 
sit down, you ask what's going on, and the blame shifting starts happening, and accusing and accusations and excuse making and rationalizing. And, and he was saying that this couple got so into it at one point, they were so fired up against each other that they had just turned their chairs and were facing each other directly. Paul literally, he just got down underneath his desk and hid. And all of a sudden, he just waited for the silence to occur because eventually they realized, like, where did Paul go? They didn't even realize he had disappeared and they stopped talking and he finally, he comes back out from underneath his desk like this and they said, what are you doing? And Paul says, I can't help you. Well, why not? We came to you. You're supposed to be the best because you have no ownership. The other person is the the total problem. You have no ownership. I can't help you. The hope of the gospel is when we first recognize that we are the problem. The problem's not out there. It's not with somebody else. The problem is with me. And yet, we rarely do this. We blame God. We blame our spouse. We blame, we say the devil made me do it. Well, if if my wife took better care of, of herself, I wouldn't struggle with lust. Well, if my husband were a, weren't a better, uh, if my husband were a better listener, I wouldn't be tempted to have long conversations on Facebook and text message with that guy that I knew all the way back in high school. Well, if my kids were more obedient, I wouldn't struggle with my anger. Well, if my church had better programs, all right, my kids would have turned out better. Said no parent ever. Well, if the, if the church had a better preacher, then I would know the Bible better and I'd be more passionate for God because it's all his responsibility. If the church weren't full of hypocrites, I'd go more often. <laughs> if my circumstances in life weren't so difficult, I wouldn't be so depressed. God, if you had answered my prayers when I had asked my life would have gone a whole lot better. I wouldn't be unhappy. I wouldn't be anxious. I wouldn't be afraid. Do you see it all? And let me, can I go back to this hiding thing for a second? When Adam and Eve run from God, where do they have that they can go and actually hide from God? They can't go anywhere. And yet, can I speak personally from things that I've just seen in the church? I see people that come into our church all the time that are running from God and hiding in plain sight. Can I speak on that just for a second? Um, People that come in all the time, this is typically how it works. Um, I'll I'll meet a person who's new in our church, and there's this this hyper-friendliness, this hyper-spirituality, this hyper-commitment that, like, pastor, I'm going to be the guy that is the most, I'm going to get involved in everything, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and just plug me in everywhere you want me to go. And it's, like, overwhelming, and there's this sense of like, I wonder if this guy is like trying to, it's typically guys overcompensating for something else that's going on in life. And it's just a gut feeling and it's not always true. But what I've oftentimes found 
is that a lot of guys who are that hyper-spiritual and serious about the Lord are typically hiding something underneath that they don't want me to see. Because if they can cover it up with all their seriousness about God, they're not going to see their sin down below. And they're hiding in plain sight. And they're running from God because somebody at their last church got a glimpse of what was going on and they got scared. And rather than running to the Lord and running to their brothers and finding reconciliation and healing, they decided to run to another group of people who don't really know them and put on more spirituality, put more makeup on to cover up all the mess. Am I tracking? Are you tracking? Does this make any sense? I remember... A couple of years ago, um, I, I, I was asked to do some counseling with a couple, and I met with a husband first, and I remember when he came in, he was all smiles, big smile, very gregarious, very easy to get along. I'm like, I really like this guy. It's really easy to get And he's talking about, oh, man, brother, you know, this last week I was sharing Jesus with all these people. I shared Jesus with this guy and shared Jesus with that guy, and it was so amazing just to see, you know, just sharing, because, you know, this, hell, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Amen, pastor? It's going to hell in a handbasket. We got to get out there, and, you know, I'll go on, on, on uh, I won't go on, but um, I just remember thinking to myself, wow, this is like really over the top. His wife comes in for counseling and you could tell as she walked in to my office, pensive, tearful, scared of her husband, terrified of him. Because all of that intensity that I saw for the Lord translated into anger and abuse for his wife in the home. But trying to overcompensate and hide his sin and his shame by making himself look hyper-spiritual. I just share that to say, I think there's a billion ways in which we tried to hide our sin and our shame in this life, and it just, it just doesn't work. We try, to, we try to cover it with stuff to make us feel better. We try to run and hide it with pseudo-spirituality, and I see this in the church all the time. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, and I can see that the person's not fine, and if I tell them they're not fine, they get really ticked off at me. How dare you tell me I'm not fine? I'm totally fine, I'm fine! (laughs) And then they blame Chef. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not having the crisis because... Of anything I've done, I'm having the crisis because of my circumstances, because of my relationships, because of my kid, because of my spouse, because of my church. It's everybody else's fault, except for mine. This is how, this is how relationships fall apart. So I point us back to the only hope that we have, as I did last week, in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is the promise, the Christmas promise, that one day, one day, God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, who's always existed in eternity past, was gonna come and take on human flesh and become one of us, walk our sod, live in our shoes, live without sin, in thought, word, deed, or action for 33 years. And then as chapter three, verse 21 shows us, when the Lord God made Adam and Eve 
for his wife garments of skin and clothed them, that Jesus Christ would literally come and having lived a perfect life would be willing to give himself up to a murderous group of people who would literally rip the flesh off of his back so that his righteousness could be applied to ours. Now I say all that to say this. The only hope that we have, any of us, for the broken relationships in our lives is Jesus Christ. The only hope. You can go all the marital counseling you can want. You can get all the tips on how to raise your children. You can get everything that you could ever want in the self-help books in Barnes & Noble. But at the end of the day, it is this. If this is broken, this will never get fixed. And the hope of Christmas is this, that Jesus Christ came down to fix our relationship with his father so that he could then also fix the relationship between us. So maybe you're here this morning and you are trying to cover your sin on your own. You're trying to hide and keep your sin hidden from other people. Or maybe you're the type that just refuses to accept responsibility. Know this. You cannot cover your sin, but Jesus can. You cannot hide from Jesus. He will track you down like a bloodhound. And when he does, he's gonna love you like you've never been loved before. He will forgive you. He will help you. He will heal you. He will mend you. And let me tell you this. If you're the type that never wants to own or take responsibility, You know, there's, there's a lot of grace for people who own their sin and shame. In the church and before a loving God. But you gotta own it. So I wonder how the Lord has been speaking to you this morning. Father, we come before you today, God, and we recognize that we need your help in our broken relationships. So Father, I pray, God, for everyone here this morning, including myself, Lord, All of us have been tainted with the bitter taste of broken relationships. Father, help us to remember that in it all, all the advice out there, all the helpful counsel that is out there, apart from Christ, there's never restoration. So Father, I pray, God, help us to run to him and find our hope in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.